Shalom, this is Yael Ziegler, and we're returning to our study of Megillat Echa. Today we'll be doing the third parak in Megillat Echa. This is quite a challenge to do parak Gimel, the middle parak of Megillat Echa, in just uh, one short session, but uh, we'll try to give at least an overview of the parak, a sense of the development of the parak, and also a sense of the importance of the parak. I, I want to first of all note that there are two important things to say about this parak even before we begin to study the content of the parak. The first thing is that this is the center of the book structurally. Right? We have five prakim in Megillat Echa, so the third parak is the central chapter, and um, I would like to suggest that that also is a reflection of the importance of its, of its content in the chiastic structure of, the larger chiastic structure of Megillat Echa, which we'll talk about perhaps in our final sec- session of our study, um, the Megillat Echa stands alone. Perak Aleph is connected to Perak Hay in the chiastic structure, right? The first chapter and the last chapter have some kind of connection. The second chapter and the fourth chapter have a connection. The third chapter stands alone. And this suggests that this chapter is the center of the book structurally. The other thing that I want to note is that this chapter, from a technical perspective, is the most different of all of the chapters in the Megillah. We immediately note this when we note that the acrostic structure of Megillat Echa appears in triple form in the third chapter. So instead of having Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid, we have Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. This, of course, means that Per Gimel is 66 psukim. It has 66 verses because it's triple the alphabet, and the alphabet in Hebrew has 22 letters. Um, and so right away we get a sense that Parakimel is different. It's, it stands out structurally. It stands out technically. And therefore, um, we're, we're meant to take note of this chapter. There are two other, um, things that are different about this chapter. I will just note also before we go on that Parakhe also does not have an acrostic structure or also is different in terms of its acrostic structure. There actually it has no acrostic structure at all. And that we'll talk about when we get to chapter five. Um, the other, two other things that I want to note here in Parak Gimel. One is that it does not begin with the word Echa. Uh, we saw that Parak Aleph begins with the word Echa. That's why we actually refer to this book as Echa because of the, per- the first word. Uh, the second chapter also begins with the word Echa as does the fourth. Once again, both the third chapter and the fifth chapter are different. Neither of them begin with the word Echa. Echa, of course, suggests a lament. It is an elongated version of the word Ech. It's almost perhaps uh, Ech with a sigh. How has this happened? Uh, Paragimel begins with the word Ani. And this leads us to the third important difference of this chapter. This chapter is spoken by the individual, the I, but not the collective I, not the I that we've seen both in Perak Aleph and in Perak Bet, not Yerushalayim, who speaks as a representative of the collective or um, uh, as the collective individual, but rather what we have here in Perak Gimel is the actual individual, the lone man, the I, the individual sufferer. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, there is eventually 
a switch of speakers in this chapter, and we're going to discuss that when we get to it, but the dominant figure in the chapter is the individual, and that only changes when something important is being conveyed um, in, in, in the switch of speaker. Now, um, alongside all of this, we also have some important differences in terms of the content of the parak. Um, there is no Yerushalayim in this parak. There's no Beit HaMikdash. There's no starvation. There's no exile. There's no national tragedy. Um, there's no recollections from a glorious past. There's no sense of the nation here. And in fact, there's nothing whatsoever that connects this chapter with the events of 586 BCE. There aren't any Kohanim. There isn't any um, Sha'are Yerushalayim. Right? There's no sense here that this chapter is really written about the Chorban. Um, and instead, what we have in this parak are many essential theological ideas which seem to be missing somewhat from the rest of Megillat Echa, ideas such as uh, tefillah, um, tshuva, and perhaps most especially God's ways, right? There's a, an attempt to explore and examine the ways of God right in the center of this chapter, um, ideas such as God's mercy, God's chesed, God's kindness. These are ideas which are examined in this chapter. Now, in order to really get a sense of what this chapter is about, I want to discuss briefly a machloket, what seems to be a controversy or an argument between Rashi and Ibn Ezra on the identity of the gever. We, of course, open this chapter with the words, Aniha gever, I am the man. Um, Rashi says very, uh, very clearly, Aniha gever, I am the man who has seen affliction. I'll translate. Rashi says, Yirmiyahu uh, was, was saying this, and he was saying, I am the man who has seen affliction. In other words, I have seen more suffering than all of the other prophets who prophesied about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, because in their days, the Beit HaMikdash wasn't actually destroyed, but it was destroyed in mine. Therefore, I am the Navi, I am the prophet who has most seen affliction. In other words, in Rashi's reading, the identity of the Gever is specifically Yirmiyahu. Um, now, of course, we know that Yirmiyahu, the, our Masoret tells us, the tradition tells us that Yirmiyahu wrote Megillat Echa. In fact, there is very much language in Megillat Echa that is uh, deeply reminiscent of Yirmiyahu's own language in Sefer Yirmiyahu. Um, and Rashi wants to say that this whole parak is a description of Yirmiyahu's suffering. Now, in fact, there are certain indications in this parak that uh, that, that certain of the descriptions of suffering that this Gever describes does remind us of Yirmiyahu's own life, notably Pasuk Yudalid, where the Gever says, Haiti l'cholami Niginatam kol hayom. I was a laughing stock for my people. I was their plaything all the day. And this reminds us very strongly of what Yirmiyahu says in chapter 20 of Sefer Yirmiyahu in verse 7. There Yirmiyahu says about himself, Haiti li 
Kol Hayom Kulo Loegli. As you can hear the echoes of that sentence, I was a laughing stock all the day, everyone mocked me. You can hear the echoes of that in Echa Perak Gimel. In addition, later on, um, the, the Gever in Echa Perak Gimel discusses what one should do when one is struck by someone else. He should give the one who strikes him his cheek and he should suffer in silence, right? This is uh, what the Gever says in Parakimel in Echa. Um, and of course, we know that Yirmiyahu himself was struck. Uh, he was also imprisoned and he was also sentenced to death. He suffered many different sufferings. And so, in fact, Rashi's reading here is a, a narrow reading, but a viable reading, right? One in which Yirmiyahu discusses the sufferings of his own life. Now, the Ibn Ezra wants to read this a little bit differently. He first brings the opinion that uh, perhaps this is Yirmiyahu, and then he brings a second opinion. He says, Yomar kol echad mi Israel. This is every man with a capital E. Every man in Israel could have said this or did say this. This is the personal story of one man's tragedy who could be anyone. In fact, according to the Ibn Ezra's reading, and this is the way that we are going to be reading um, Paragimel in Megillat Echa, according to the Ibn Ezra's reading, Paragimel presents a normal way in which man responds to tragedy and teaches man how to utilize this tragedy to attain greater heights in his relationship through tragedy. And of course, even in saying this, it is probable, it is uh, not just possible, but it is likely that Yirmiyahu would draw upon his personal experience when composing this chapter without intending to suggest that this chapter is the story of his personal experience. This would, of course, account for the strong similarities between Yirmiyahu's life and the Gever's suffering without saying that this parak is really about Yirmiyahu. This parak is about every man's suffering. And that's the way the Ibn Ezra suggests that we read the parak. In fact, Ibn Ezra's contention is seems to be corroborated by ancient Near, e- Near Eastern uh, literature, specifically Akkadian wisdom literature, in which the anonymous sufferer is called a Gever. Now, I'll just mention briefly that in Tanakh, we often have many different synonyms um, and, and it's very important when there are different synonyms to try to understand the different connotations of each synonym. In other words, why would the Tanakh use one word and not another in, um, in examining the different words for man in Tanakh? The most common one, of course, is Ish. We also have Adam. We also have Enosh. And we also have Gever. Without going into all of the different connotations of these different words, it is important, I think, to note that the word Gever is a derivative of the word um, of the same word which is Gibor, which is a strong man, a heroic man in other words, someone who can overcome the difficulties in their life, someone who has overcome tragedy, that is why perhaps it is natural that the word for man used in this context is Gever. This is the story of someone who was, as we say in Hebrew, mitgaber, who was able to overcome some of the difficulties in his life. So this Gever is the stereotypical sufferer who is present to teach us how to cope with our situation, how to cope with the um, situation of suffering in which one finds oneself. Um, now, I'd like to divide this 
chapter into three parts. Note that we do not divide this chapter into two parts as we divided the other two chapters. This chapter is simply different. It's different than the other two chapters, as we noted before, in terms of its content. It's also different in terms of its structure. The three-part division of the parak is once again designed to highlight the center, right? The center of the center of the book of Echa. And so the middle part is going to be perhaps the most important part. Um, I, I, I also wanted to note that there is no chiastic structure in this parak, unlike, of course, the other two prakim where we discussed the chiastic structure. Okay, um, so what we have said so far is that this is a very important chapter in Tanakh. I'd like to give a title to this chapter before we actually begin to look at the content of the chapter, and that is, I'd like to call this chapter How Religious Man Contends with Suffering. That uh, very um, impressive title, I think, also gives us a sense of the importance of this parak, not just in the Book of Echa, but perhaps in Tanakh in general. This parak is a blueprint for suffering. It teaches us how to suffer within the context of um, our relationship with God. And that, I think, is a, is a striking idea, and this is a striking parak. Um, now, if we divide this parak into three parts, I would divide the first part is the first through the the 18th pasuk, Aleph through Yudchet. Um, the middle of the parak, it starts in verse 21. So that means that we have two verses that seem to transition us from the first part to the second part, because I skipped over Psukim, Yudchet, and Kaf. The middle part of the parak is verses 21 through 39, and the last part of the parak are verses 40 through 66. Now, again, I recognize that most of you who are listening to this year are probably sitting in a car or in a place where they're not looking into the parak itself, and so I'm going to try to make this as easy as possible to learn this parak without actually looking into the psukim. Uh, what I'd like to do first is to summarize the first section. Now, the first section is a description of suffering. Um, in this first section of Megillat Echa, the Gever describes what is it that he has experienced that has led him to to write this parak. He says, Ani oni. I am the man who has seen affliction. And now he describes that affliction. Now the description of this affliction occurs in two parts. The first part is Psukim Aleph through Yud Aleph. In this part, there are three dominant images, three images that are striking. The first thing is the sense that he is in darkness. He says in Pasuk Bet, Oti Nahag Vayolach Choshech Velo Or. He has led me, and he has led me in darkness and not in light. Who is this, uh, perhaps we should pause and note, who is this he that has led him in darkness and not in light? And the he, the hidden he, already appears in Pasuk Aleph when he says, I am the man who has seen affliction with the rod or by the rod of his anger. Whose anger are we talking about? Of course, we're talking about God. In general, throughout the section, this first section of Paragimel, God is missing. He speaks about God in the third person, but he actually never mentions God explicitly. God is alien. Alien. God is distant, right? It is the rod of his anger. He he has led me in darkness and not in light. Right? So we get a sense also of the fact that he is blaming God, but also the fact that he is very distanced from God. Um, the same darkness theme appears in Pasuk Vav. B'machashakim hoshivani kimetei Olam, he has placed me in darkness like the dead of the world. The sufferer here is in 
total darkness. Now, alongside this image, we have a, a sense throughout the section that he cannot see where he is going. He has no direction. He can't stay on the proper path. He has no ability to keep himself from stumbling. Right? We see, for example, uh, in Pasuk Tet, uh, he has blocked my path with these stones and he has twisted my paths. Okay, God is twisting his paths so that he can't find the proper path. But again, the sense is, is that he can't find the path because God is not leading him because, and because he's in darkness, right? So there's this sense that he's sort of stumbling around without the ability to find his way back to his path. We again have the word durachai, path in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Durachai sorer vayfashcheni. He has twisted or he has um, perverted my path and he has mangled me. Okay, So this darkness theme, alongside with the sense that he cannot find his path, is intended to suggest that without God on his side, because God is so distant from him, he is in darkness. And of course, we know in Tanakh that God is light. Hashem ori vishi, we say in Mizmor Kafzayin of Tehillim, in chapter 27 of Psalms, we say, God is my light and my savior. And of course, this image is very dominant in Tanakh. God is often described as fire, something that is able to give you light something that leads you and guides you and keeps you from falling and shines his light upon the proper path that we are meant to walk, right? This is, of course, a metaphoric idea. And the sense is, is that this man who is in suffering, who has been placed in, in this place of suffering by God, cannot find his way back to his proper path it remains in the state of darkness because God is not on his side. That's the first important imagery that we have in this opening section. The second is the animal imagery. And this is extremely um, fierce, extremely violent imagery where he says as follows. He says, He has swallowed my flesh and my skin. He has broken my bones. Right? We can hear the sense of animalistic um, torture that this person is suffering. Um, and then, of course, this imagery is is made very explicit in verse 10. Dov orev huli. He is a bear that is ambushing me. Arib misterim. He is a lion lying in wait in a hidden place. Um, this is, of course, the hidden he is, of course, God. God is portrayed as a wild animal waiting in the shrubbery to pounce on his victim and tear him to shreds. The same sort of idea is perhaps um, indicated in the next pasuk in, in verse 11, Drachai sorer vayifashcheni. The word vayifashcheni probably means something like, and he mangled me, right? Which is, again, a kind of an animal um, uh, imagery. Now, the sense here, and I think that the imagery that is used here is used in order to convey the sense of a particular fierce and vicious type of torture. Uh, but more importantly, it is a particularly frightening way to grasp your suffering at the hands of God because animals are arbitrary about their victims. And the, the, the idea that is presented here is that the man feels, the giver feels, the anonymous sufferer is uh, feeling that God does not 
care who his victim actually is, but he is pouncing on him arbitrarily. And that is the sense, perhaps, that the giver has here. In the initial throes of his suffering, he feels that he has been the arbitrary victim of a fierce and cruel God. Um, the final image that we have here in this initial description of suffering is the image of encirclement. And this occurs four times in this, in this very brief opening section, uh, the first 11 psukim. Four times we have encirclement. We have in uh, against me, he returns. He turns his hand around me all the day. He has built against me and he has encircled me with poison and hardship in Pasuk Zion. He builds a fence around me so that I cannot get out. And again, we saw that in Pasuk Tet. This encirclement seems to be connected also to the animal image. Of course, the animal circles its prey with smaller and smaller circles until he finally pounces. But I think more importantly, it indicates the frame of mind of the of the sufferer of the victim he is imprisoned he is trapped he is surrounded on all sides there is no escape even by prayer and this is the next the last thing perhaps that i want to show you here and that is verse 8 in verse 8 the sufferer in this terrible state of mind in which he feels imprisoned by god in which the imagery of encirclement of being surrounded on all sides conveys this sense that he can't escape because god has entrapped him his enemy is god and therefore it is useless to fight because it's a losing battle in as part of this image and and again alongside the sense that he's in darkness that he can't find his path and that that God is pouncing on him arbitrarily, um, we have this one description of his attempt to get out, his attempt to emerge from the state of suffering, and that is in Pasuk where he says, Gam ki ezak satam tfilati, even when I cry out and I plead, my prayer has been shut out. Okay, so he's trying to exit this state of suffering, but his prayer has been shut out. Now, this is a terrible pasuk where he uh, indicates that he feels that his prayer is futile, that he has no um, no ability to uh, to even. There's no recipient for his prayer. I want to suggest that what's really problematic in this pasuk is the um, the 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 um, speaker in this pasuk. We have three times, really what's missing from this pasuk of tefillah. Three times the sufferer talks about the I. Even when I cry out and I plead, my prayer has been shut out. What's missing, of course, from this pasuk is the thou. There is no you. There is no second person in this pasuk. It's as though the, um, the, the sufferer really actually doesn't see the other side. He can't even find the thou. And here again, I mean, I think that this is really the important idea that emerges from this description, and that is that the victim is self-absorbed in his victimness. 
Now, I'm not saying this as a criticism of the victim. I'm saying this as a first stage of um, of suffering, right? The, the sense here is that this gever is so deeply immersed in his own sense of suffering that uh, he can't see anyone but himself. And this self-absorbed state is perhaps a natural state. It's perhaps a state in which he has to turn inward. Perhaps there's even something uh, you can perhaps ask a psychologist. I'm not, this is not exactly my field, but perhaps there's even something that is uh, important and and uh, enriching, uh, or enriching may be the wrong word, is important and necessary about this stage. The uh, ability to turn inward is perhaps the first the first part of recovery, um, but in any case, the sense here is that he can't even find God. He can't see outside of his own suffering. Now, things begin to change already in Pasuk Yudbet. In Pasuk Yudbet, uh, the torturer, the enemy, is no longer portrayed as a, an animal who is arbitrarily pouncing on his pay, on his prey, but as a person capable of choosing and targeting his victim in a calculated and deliberate manner. And this actually is the second half of the description of suffering. We no longer have the arbitrary uh, idea, but rather we have darach kashtov yatsiveni kamatara lachets. He poised his bow and he stood me up as a target for his arrow. This is, first of all, not an animal. And secondly, this is someone who is very deliberately and very consciously shooting arrows at his target. And so suddenly it begins to dawn on the sufferer that this is, in fact, not an arbitrary experience, but rather he is being singled out for torture. And, of course, he has to contend with that. Is this a step forward or is it a step backwards? That, I think, is a a matter of uh, to, of some debate. In other words, it seems to be a step backwards from an emotional perspective because suddenly he recognizes that he's not just some arbitrary victim, but he's been singled out for this punishment. It is perhaps a step forward in a theological direction because only after one recognizes that there is something deliberate about this uh, about this this suffering that he can actually begin to understand the situation and reconcile with with it and reconcile with God. Um, this entire section really is is about this deliberate sense, he brought into my innards the sons of his quiver. In other words, he shot arrows at me. But we see also in Pasuk Yudalid, he satiated me with bitter bitter uh, herbs, presumably. He saturated me with poison. In other words, he forced fed me poison and bitterness. This is both a metaphor and perhaps also an actual description of torture. He broke my teeth with stones. He overcame me with dirt. Perhaps he stuffed dirt into my mouth. Right? No longer do we have an animal-like torture. The animals don't break people's teeth with stones. They don't shoot arrows. They don't stuff their mouths with dirt. This is the these are the actions of a rational being and not an animal who can only cruelly mangle his victims. In fact, all the actions in this second part of the description of suffering use an object and never his bare hands, right? which again indicates uh, a person. Uh, in any case, what we have starting in Pasuk Yud Zion is his emotional response to this torment, 
particularly the sense that he recognizes suddenly that he has been singled out for torture. And what is his emotional response? His emotional response is devastating. Vatiznach mishalom nafshi, my soul rejected peace. Nashiti tova, I forgot what was good. Vaomar, and I said, avad nitzchi v'tochati my strength has been lost and my hope in God. Um, here, th- this is, this is a, a terrible description. You can picture this wretched person who seems to be lying prone on the floor with no desire to get up, with no reason to go on. He has no more strength. He has no more hope. He has no more peace. He has no more good. He has no more tranquility in his life. And he's lost his hope in God. And yet with all of this, and we really feel that we've reached rock bottom here, with all of this, there is a certain um, turnaround that has taken place at the very end of Pasuk Yudchet. And that is, of course, Shem Hashem. The word Hashem suddenly becomes glaringly absent in the first 17 Sukim in the first 17 verses of this chapter, and suddenly we recognize how absent it has been. We recognize that uh, he really has felt very distanced from God, and um, in this pasuk where he talks about losing his hope in God, to some extent by invoking God's name, he begins to regain God. There's almost this um, uh, stream of consciousness that is going to now result from the mere mention of God's name. There's almost this uh, sudden sense that he has been missing God. He wakes up from this stupor of being self-absorbed in his victimness that we had until now. And it's as though he says, May Hashem, uh, oh, Hashem, I forgot that I need to consider God's role in this. I need to consider God's role in life, in the scheme of things. And by beginning to recall God's ways and the fact that he once had hope in God, he begins to embark on this stream of consciousness that also evokes his is faith in God. Um, now, this is a very difficult transition. This is a very difficult turnabout because it seems to occur so suddenly. And so here I just want to note an, an interesting idea that Rav Soloveitchik um, uh, brings up that he discusses in Alachuva in his um, book of, of essays. Really, these were um, shurim that he gave during the Aser Yimei Tshuva that the Rev would give every year during Aser Yimei Tshuva, and some of them were compiled into a book edited by Pinchas Peli called Al Hachuva. It appears both in Hebrew and in English. Um, and in one of his essays there, he discusses two different ways of becoming a Baal Tshuva. He talks about the intellectual process, which is gradual, it's a gradual, rational process which leads man to the conclusion that he must reconcile with God. But he also discusses a different type of tshuva, and he says this tshuva doesn't begin in the mind, this tshuva begins in the heart. This is a more emotional process of tshuva in which it's not a gradual process, but man is suddenly struck by the inaneness of his actions, by the baseness and the depravity with which his life was being conducted, or perhaps, if not baseness and depravity, the meaninglessness of his life, but it's a sudden realization, and he is struck with a sudden 
desperate need to reconcile with God. This perhaps is an example of the latter kind, which I would even venture to say seems to me to be a more common experience of tshuva. This mention of God, this suddenly being struck in the heart with a sense of what one has been missing until now. And this seems to be what happens here. And this leads us directly into the next section in which um, uh, really what we have is the grappling with God's ways. And that is the middle section of this parak. But before I get there, and it seems to me that what I'm realizing today is that uh, this shiur is going to be the first of a two-part shiur. We're already at, I think, 31 minutes, and I've only done the first section of this parak. So... Um, with apologies to those who had hoped that we were going to finish Parak Gimel today. I think that we're going to have to stop at some point in the middle and we'll pick up with Parak Gimel in our next, uh, in our next session. Um, but let's just talk for a minute about these two transition verses. In these two transition verses, the dominant word is Zachar. It appears here three times and I'm talking about verses 19 and 20. It's the two verses that transition us from the state of suffering to a, a state of self-absorbed suffering, a state where all he can really do is look at his own sense of, of pain and uh, wretchedness to an ability to look outwards and to begin to grapple with some of the objective notions of God and God's ways and what really could have led him to this state of suffering. Um, the transition takes place with the word zechor. Um, he's thinking about his pain. He's not actually in it. He's thinking back towards it, right? The words of horse suggest that there's a little bit of distance, that he has a little bit separated himself from that place of suffering where he was, that he can think about it a little bit objectively. And he says as follows. He says, Zachar onyi umerudi la'ana verosh. When I remember my affliction and my suffering, it is poison and hardship. Zachar tizkor. But when I think still harder, when I remember it better, this is a very difficult phrase. I, I, I'm not going to get into it in this shiur, but I will note that uh, many of the sources tell us that this phrase is a tikkun sofrim, a tikkun sofrim, meaning something that the sofrim connect, uh, corrected. I, uh, for lack of time, I'm not going to get into it right now. I'm going to loosely translate this pasuk as, when I remember it still Harder When I think about it more, my soul becomes humbled within me. And this transition suggests that when I think about my suffering uh, briefly, I, I just suffer. I just feel the pain of it. But when I have a little bit of distance and when I think about it a little bit more seriously, a little bit more objectively, more properly, I realize that I must be at least partially culpable, that there is a sense of justice in the world. And this, of course, brings us back to Perak Aleph, in which the man groped his way towards a realization of culpability. Um, here, there's a sense, again, of when I think about God's ways in the world, I recognize that there is a certain uh, amount of objective uh, justice of din v'cheshbon yesh din v'yesh dayan, and therefore I turn it in uh, towards me, v'tashoach alayin afshi, my soul becomes humbled within me. Rashi reads this pasuk a little bit differently. I'm really reading this more like the Ibn Ezra reads it. The Ibn Ezra says very explicitly, When my nefesh remembers this um, evil, 
Teshochlai becomes humbled within me. This is a, 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 a one reading, and Rashi offers two other readings. Um, but this reading, I think, really brings us to the next section in which the um, the the section is going to deal, as I mentioned, with the preeminent questions of God's ways, of man's place on earth, of the possibility of relationship between them, of man grasping God's ways within the context of our, of his suffering. What we're going to see is, is that the same person that rejected any possibility of peace in Pasuk Yud Zion, that was completely, uh, that had completely lost his hope in Pasuk Yud Chet, is going to progress steadily back towards the ability to find peace, to find hope, and ultimately also to find tova. There were um, four things that the person lost in Psukim uh, Yudzayin and Yudchet. Shalom, tova, nitzchi, which I translated as koach, my, my strength, and tochalti, which is my hope. And all of these things he is going to regain as he grapples with God's ways. This is a very difficult section to teach. I am going to save it for our next section. Um, but I, I think it is important to note that this next section in which man is going to emerge from his suffering and, and, and to be able to perhaps objectively grasp the the God's ways in the world a little bit differently, is not, of course, a comprehensive grappling with God's ways. It's only 19 sentences. It's 19 psukim, and each pasuk is one sentence. It's not prescriptive. It's not a textbook. It's just a model as to how man can progress steadily from his place of suffering to a place where he can once again reconcile with God and with God's ways on earth. And that we're going to save for the next class.